Today's presentation will be recorded by Shaw TV, and we need to limit the amount of background noise. Lunch is $11. Please deposit your money into the basket on the table and designate someone at the table to do the math to make sure everyone is covered before collection at lunch. Today's meeting format is 25 to 30 minutes for presentation, followed by lunch, and then 30 minutes for questions. We will finish at 1.30 today. Today I have the pleasure of introducing today's speaker, Dr. Jennifer Mather. Dr. Mather was born in Victoria, British Columbia, where she developed a fascination for sea animals. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Biology from University of British Columbia, a Master's in Biology from Florida State, and a PhD in Psychology from Brandeis University. After she earned a University Research Fellowship and worked as a Research Assistant Professor at Western University for five years. Dr. Mather has been a university at the University of Lethbridge since 1985, where she currently works as a professor of psychology, researching octopus behavior. Beyond this research interest, Dr. Mather's work is also concerned with women in science, having been involved in activism and teaching on gender issues, non-standard university teaching, and human-animal interactions and invertebrate welfare. The title of our presentation today is Women in Science, why are there relatively few? A perfect topic for today, seeing as today is International Women's Day. Can I please get a warm welcome for Dr. Jennifer Mather. Thank you. I feel proud to be here as it is International Women's Day. But I'm afraid the thing I'm going to talk about is not about women's accomplishments, but about barriers to women's accomplishments, an area that women are not well represented and an area in which we have a major contribution to make if we were allowed to. Let's see. Okay, that works. So this is just obvious. Women are underrepresented in science, particularly science, technology, engineering, mathematics. The more you get to the physical sciences, the fewer women you find. And I will give you some slides to show you very graphically what this underrepresentation looks like. This is a little bit shocking. I've never actually seen it graphed. 895 Nobel Prizes, 48 women. I'm quite sure that gender has nothing to do with being brilliant. But it certainly looks that way when you see these prizes. Notice, by the way, the vast, vast majority of people who presumably have brilliant ideas in science are white males. But there's more subtle differences, nonetheless. If you look at the graduates in the area we call STEM, you find in science and technology generally yeah, more men than women. Engineering, way more men than women. Math and computer science, way more men than women. If you look at, the, uh, this, this is a particular program to reward people who have exceptionally good ideas in science and therefore to be allowed to minimize the teaching and maximize the research. Tier one, more prestige, more money. Tier two, less prestige, less money, but still a prestige. And if you look at, you see, yep, hardly any women in tier one and not very many women. It's 15% uh, and 30%. And this is a Canadian federal program, which is supposed to be awarding the best of the best scientists. Now, I actually got the dean of my faculty of arts and science to help me 
to get the numbers in terms of professors. So this is professors in the sciences, in arts and science at University of Lethbridge. Now the status goes from the left to the right. So instructors are people who are helping in labs, marking papers, advising students, not necessarily doing research. And you notice that it's just about 50-50. But you travel across the way and you find full professor, which is the person of highest status, it's, I think, 18% women, okay? So this encapsulates the problem. Not that there are no women in science, but that it's very difficult to find women in leadership and seniority positions. And by the way, we get paid less, too. So in biology, and yeah, I care, of course. So in biology, women are getting paid less. In chemistry, women are getting paid less. Notice in physics and astronomy, women are getting paid way less. How come? Well, I would argue that there's both internal and external reasons. Internal in terms of motivation, interest, expectation, and family work balance, which is important. And external in terms of bias, stereotyping, and cultural constructs. Bias is judging people by the wrong criteria. Deciding that someone who has a skirt can't be a physicist, or wears a skirt, and I guess I don't know who wears what, but stereotypes. A stereotype is an important problem for science because what the stereotyping is saying is if you're in this category, we believe that you behave like this, even if you don't. And you run into this problem because as women began to move into the university setting, it was like, okay, you're a woman and you're representative of all women, even if you're not. Okay, I teach lifespan development, particularly I have a course on lifespan development of women. And I would argue that this all happens because of influences that push us, exclude us, include us, all through the lifespan. So I will start with early and go to adulthood. We don't realize it, but parental, media, and peer influences all steer men and women in different directions. And I like to use a model for this. This is Bronfenbrenner's model of the ecology of children. And it's kind of like an onion, like you're at the middle and there's people who are very major influences or close to you, like your parents. There's people who are a little bit further away in institutions that are a little bit further away, like your school's policy. And then further and further, you get to the point of the community or not just the community, maybe the, the government of Alberta, the government of Canada. So all of these influence every in single one of us. Less as you get away, but the outer onion skin people influence the people close to you. So it's interactive as well as closer, closer, more influence. And one of the first things that happens is that when a baby's born, parents already have expectations of what those children are going to be like, okay? I actually had a student, I was talking in developmental psychology about this, and I had a student who had four children. And I was explaining that this started early on in life, and he said, you know, when my son was born, I went out and got him a football. 
he said it was sort of silly because he clearly couldn't even hold it. But we believe that girls should be in particular activities, boys should be in particular activities, and as parents, even though we might not really realize we're doing it, we segregate them in terms of interests and skills. And we find when we look at children that boys are more confident and less anxious about their ability. Boys are told they're the right kind of person, and girls are implicitly told that they're not as good as the boys. Now, this is really funny, actually. Um, this particular person asked children who a scientist looked like. And this is what one of them drew. Um, they're all men. They're in ugly white coats. They're by themselves completely, and they're obsessed with their work. I'm, I'm glad to say pretty well all the scientists I know, male or female, don't look like that, don't behave like that. But when you look in the media, you find that the media portrayals, and the, and the paper that I wrote was actually about educational programs, okay? You find that women are portrayed as scientists less, fewer of them, and each of them has less time actually exposed in the media. They're junior in their careers, whereas the men are the senior ones, and they're rarely in charge, and they're more motivated by romance than they are by a passion for research. It doesn't represent the females I know, but the trouble is children watch these shows, and this is what they see when they're thinking about women scientists. And I mentioned this evaluation before. Boys think they're good, girls think the boys are better, particularly in science, but not just in science, in pretty well everything. And when you do surveys of parents, they say, oh yes, my boys are smarter, especially in math. But there's another problem creeping in, and this is a graph from the US, and it's, I think it's over 10 years old. And sorry, the men are red and the females are blue. I couldn't, couldn't change the graphs, it was pink and blue. Notice children have very healthy self-esteem, no problem. But you hit adolescence and the self-esteem plummets. And interesting enough, it plummets for boys, plummets for girls, but it plummets way, way, way more for girls. And it stays down there all through the adult lifespan. Men think they're better and more important than women. It actually peaks at about 60, 69, and then we get to about the 80s, and you're retired, and everybody sees you as a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman, and then self-esteem goes down, okay? But this is an important, <laughs> sorry people. <laughs> but this is an important thing to know, because basically what this graph says is men think they're better, boys think they're better, people think males are better. And I was, Watching something on TV, they were talking about having a program to help adolescent girls with self-esteem. It makes sense. They need it. They don't think they count. Okay. Long ago, the Sadkers did research on teaching, and they actually watched teachers interact with boys and girls, and they found that teachers pay more attention to boys than girls. Okay. Nurturing. We don't nurture the talents of girls like we do 
the talents of boys. Now, I'll talk about hiring later. It matters. Family, I've already talked a little bit about how family fosters the competence of boys more than girls. Guidance counselors in high school. I think it's better now, but I can remember when it was that the guidance counselors would say, oh, you're a girl, you don't want to go to math. The teachers would say, no, no, you don't want to go to math, you're a girl. And role models, having people like me who are competent scientists who say, yep, you can do it too. I won't talk about hostile work environments. It has been fascinating to follow the hashtag me too process and to watch women saying, look, I'm being demeaned, I'm being harassed. I don't think there's a lot of that in academia, but there's a lot of sort of unconscious bias. It's still there. And having told you that boys think they're better than girls and that parents think that their sons are better than daughters, I actually got our institutional analysis people to evaluate the grade point average of male and female students. And this is something like 8,000, so that's a lot of people. And the mean grade point average for women is 2.94. The mean for men is 2.77. The females are better than the males. Even though everybody thinks the males are better, actually, the females, the girls are better, the women are better. That, that's a little bit astonishing when you think about the fact that we have this mythology that boys are better at all these things. And yet, it's the opposite. About 20, 25 years ago in the US, people started looking at a gap between men and women, boys and girls in math, and they found that boys scored higher. But subsequently, it's nice to know there's something I can say that there has been progress. Subsequently, it's the case that the gap between male scores and female scores is narrowing. It's not quite gone yet, but it's nearly gone. So we know, and we know because it's now gone like that so quickly over a couple of decades, we know that it wasn't talent. It must have been social influence because talent can't change like that in a couple of decades. So we know that the reason we thought boys were better at math is that we told them they were better at math and we told the girls they couldn't do math and after a while they kind of gave up and believed what everybody told them. It turns out across societies, I was fascinated to find out that across societies there are differences in the equity and equity within the culture leads to equity in terms of math achievement, science achievement, any kind of achievement. And there's a correlation between the number of women who are in the national parliament and equity. So our leaders are making a difference. If you look at this, you find that 27% of our MPs are female. So that's not very many. But what I find more interesting is that with the equal numbers of men and women in the cabinet, I think this is going to make a top-down influence. It's slow, but I think it's going to help. For instance, we have a female minister of science, and she has already looked at the different representation of males and females in the research chair program and said, we've got to do something about this. Think of us as having a positive feedback loop. We start off with a little bit of inequity. Everybody believes in the stereotypes. You behave according to what the stereotypes tell you you ought to do. 
And so maybe if you're a woman, you don't push for leadership positions, you don't push for being a research chair. And after a while, everybody says, okay, well, women can't do this because they aren't doing it, okay? So you have this positive feedback loop that just feeds on itself. And this can have a big effect on young women because think of this stereotype problem. Girls don't like science, okay? But a young woman of, say, 17 says, but I like science, but I'm a girl. Those are mutually exclusive categories. I must be wrong. I must just not be liking science. There's two major ways you can counter this particular threat. One is to have role models, to have women who are doing what the girls have been told they can't do. And another way is to explicitly have good teaching and encouragement, for instance, for girls to go into math, or for that matter, for young men to go into nursing. We don't need to have the stereotypes, but if we don't encourage people to break the stereotypes, they won't. Now, let's imagine you're a PhD, okay? This is sort of the beginning of stepping into academia. Well, it turns out that there's a lot of little biases that stand in the way of you being seen as good as you are. So it turns out that if you have a male name on a research paper, it will be evaluated better than if you have a female name on a research paper. I find that very annoying, having an obvious female name. And there's a journal called Behavioral Ecology that decided that they would have reviewers not see anyone's name, okay? And then they looked at it and after five years they found there were 8% more women successful in publishing papers in that journal just because they didn't have names on it anymore and people couldn't have that unconscious bias of, oh, it must, it must not be very good, it's a woman, okay? Recommendations from your professors are weaker for females. Male teachers are rated as better. This one annoys me. More male graduate students are enrolled in elite schools, so they kind of start out ahead. Males start out ahead and they kind of stay ahead. One of the problems is that females are expected to teach more. It's harder to get a research grant if you have a female name. They found there's less allocation of workspace for female scientists. This one actually was at MIT. They had a review about 10 years ago and they said, oh no, we don't have gender discrimination. And after it was all over, they said, uh-oh, we really do. This results in slower promotion for female faculty. And of course, slower promotion doesn't look like it's a problem, but it means that you don't get the chance to do as much of the research work as you'd like to do you don't get the influence with other people. Maybe you find it more difficult to find graduate students to work with you. See, having graduate students is a status thing, and it's also a way to foster your future research. So if you have four or five graduate students working with you, they're probably helping to carry out your ideas. And so you end up with more publications. And NSERC, the funding agency for science, expects, as part of the review of researchers, that you will have shown that you're producing graduate students, future PhDs, future professors. So clearly, 
if you don't have this excellence, so to speak, in research, then you're not going to be successful. You're going to be promoted more slowly, whether you like it or not. Women tend to get pigeonholed in academia and told that they should do more work in service. They should be on more committees. They should be mentoring students more. And, and it's difficult to say no. If you're the only woman in a department and people want you to teach because, after all, women are good teachers, aren't they? Okay. But you also know that you're mentoring the females in your classes. It becomes difficult to say, no, I will concentrate on my research. I won't do more than my share of all these other jobs because it is the case, whether we like it or not, that in academia, research is the more important part of the job. That's what gets you promotion. That's what gets you a big research grant so you can do more research, okay? And, and I, I, I'm gonna go back to this bit of teaching because I think I have a little spare time and I find this very, very interesting. We kind of take it for granted that students fairly evaluate teachers and every one of us is in fact evaluated by our classes. But there's a huge number of influences. We find that students evaluate teachers who have an accent, who are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. They evaluate these particular teachers more poorly. We find that teachers evaluate, that students evaluate teachers who are teaching difficult subjects like statistics. We find that t students evaluate teachers as less competent if they're teaching at eight o'clock in the morning when the students are half awake and not learning very well. <laughs> but it's very difficult to say, well, we know students are evaluating teachers more stringently if they're female, because after all, you're standing in front of them. How can we get rid of all that influence? And somebody did what I think is a marvelous study. They had a male teacher and a female teacher, each teaching two sections of a distance course. So they weren't actually seeing the teachers themselves. Okay, and the male teacher taught two sections and the female teacher taught two sections. And they gave a male name to this section and a male name to this section and a female name to this section and a female name to this section. Okay, so each of them was teaching two sections, but the students thought that each of them was either male or female. And then they looked at the student evaluations. Sure enough, there was no difference between the male and the female. There was a difference between the male name and the female name. And students evaluated the teaching of somebody with a male name better than the teaching of somebody with a female name. That's been one of my favorites. By the way, students also evaluate you in terms of appearance. I read a wonderful story, a paper from Texas and this, they had a bunch of students who evaluated teachers for attractiveness, okay? Males and females. And they found that the difference in terms of teacher eva teaching evaluation, one whole standard deviation was based on attractiveness. I suggested to one of my female colleagues that we should argue that the dean's office should pay for makeup and hairstyling. <laughs> <laughs> we never tried. <laughs> Um, one of the problems that is not in the perception of individuals is that we as a society presume that having children, raising children is women's work, okay? 
And again, one of my cynical colleagues, I think one of my cynical female colleagues, but I'm not sure, said three things. Happy marriage, wonderful children, successful career. Pick two. <laughs> That's not nice talk. However, if you, if you really look at women scientists, what you find is that many, many female scientists don't marry. They're simply single. It's entirely, what I should say is it's not that female scientists don't marry, but the ones that marry drop out. Um, sometimes they go to the corporate work world because the corporate work world is in fact much more reasonable in terms of the time pressure, okay? But if you actually look at women scientists, a lot of them don't marry. Fewer yet have children, okay? So women are making decisions about these three by saying, won't do that one, and maybe won't do that one because then I can have the successful career. And I'm not quite sure how these people compute these, but they did compute what happened in terms of productivity with female scientists who had children. And they said there's actually a 10% less productivity if you have a child, given that you're also a practicing scientist. The other thing that happens, and um, there was this wonderful paper called Summer Babies and Post-Tenure Babies, because before there was parental leave, by the way, the United States has no parental leave for anybody. But in Canada, we have good, clear parental leave, including for academia, we have a reasonable parental leave program. But when women didn't have parental leave, they would time their children nicely for the beginning of May. Because then they'd have the summer when they weren't teaching that they could actually get at least through the first few important months of the baby's life. And what's happening now, because we do have parental leave, is that women are saying, well, I want to have a baby, but it's particularly damaging to my career if I have a baby before I get tenure. So I won't have a baby until I have tenure. Now, this looks okay on the surface, but on average, we start our academic careers as professors at about age 31, 32, 33. If it takes us six years to get tenure, then let's say by 38, you're beginning to think, okay, now I'd like to have a baby. And unfortunately, the best fertility is between 18 and 24. So many cases, women decide, okay, now I can have a baby, and they find, oops, now that I want one, I can't. And I will remind you, this is Stats Canada, and of course it's not just for academia, it's for everybody. But women are assumed to take the vast majority of domestic chores, even if they're working in the workforce, in the paid workforce. And this is Statistics Canada, notice. Domestic chores, 13.8 hours per week. Childcare, 50 hours a week. Women end up caring more for seniors. And the result is that women in the workforce are far more likely to work part-time because they have all the other things they have to do. We sometimes call it the leaky pipeline. From the PhD to tenure track to tenure, married fathers have a fairly smooth way to go. Single women, almost the same. But then look at married women and you find 35% lower odds to get the tenure track position. 
27% low rise to be tenured. They leak out to outside academia because especially the time pressure. Also the evaluation, but especially the time pressure. So what I would have to say to you if you said, well, what can we do to get more women into science? I would say it's not enough to just open the door. We really have to open our minds. And I would also say, and I think I want to make sure you think about this, that minorities have much the same problem and women minorities have both problems piled on together. Yeah, we can change this, but we all have to work at it. It's not a case that a few people in a few positions and a few pieces of, of, pieces of advice can change it. We all have to work at it if we want there to be more women and more minorities in science. Thank you.